Welcome to Cinema Adventure. We are a movie podcast where every week we sit down and have a discussion about a film. This week we're talking about Akira Kurosawa's High and Low from 1963. I'm Aiden Walker. And I'm Blake Peterson. Let's get into it. Okay. Okay. So neither of us had seen this one before, so it was kind of fun to watch it. Yeah, I do not know what to expect. Did you watch it on your own? I did watch it on my own. I was stupid and I procrastinated watching it until kind of late at night. And I don't know why. I just like assumed it'd be a normal length, but it was like two and a half hours. It's a long one. I had to split it into, I think like three viewings. Wow. A couple different times. Three acts, huh? Yeah. A couple different times today. Like watch a little, then I have to like go to class or something and then watch the rest. But it's good. Yeah. This is a Scorsese length feature. It really is. It's a lot to take in. It is. but... But you liked it. I did like it a lot, yeah. I'm happy to hear that. I'm not used to watching two and a half hour long movies, so I kind of, my brain is automatically like, this is moving too slowly. And then it's like, no, like it has to develop. It's two and a half hours long. Oh, this one has a lot of development. A lot of development. I I paused it because the first third of the movie takes place just in the Toshiro Mifune's character, Gondo, his house. And it's just him and his wife and his kid and the police, right? And I guess the other man. But it's just them in their house for the first 55 minutes of the movie before you go to any other location. Yeah, no, that like threw me off too because the beginning is so cen- centered on them. And then after that, then it becomes more of a police investigation sort of movie. So you kind of get used to this character and then you don't really see him a whole lot after that. But that's kind of one of the things I like too about this movie is you never necessarily know where it's going to go. At first, you kind of think it's going to be this one setting thriller sort of thing like dial in for murder and then it totally pivots and becomes just like a standard procedural which i like having those two distinct acts yeah i was definitely getting uh 12 angry men vibes at the beginning of this movie but then once you get that transition to kind of the outside world and the kind of descent into some of the grimier darker parts of the city that they're in it's just a different different direction than i expected it to take yeah and having those two distinct acts you know, plus the length and you have kind of these two lead protagonists. It just feels very fully formed and very rounded, which I like a lot too. Cause I think a lot of movies, since they are not two and a half hours long, usually you don't have this multidimensionality that you get here. So I like kind of the contrast between those. Big, big agree. Do you want to give a pot rundown? I for... would love to. I think this one is kind of <laughs> easy to explain. I mean, I'd hope so, there's yeah. a lot that happens in it, but it's kind of a simple plot when yeah. it really boils down to it. So there's a man named uh, Kingo Gondo, who's played yes. by Toshiro Mifune, and he's incredible, as usual. <laughs> and uh, his character is this wealthy man who made his fortune from working uh, for a shoe company. And he has been secretly buying stocks behind the backs of the other shareholders in this big secret plan to buy them out and own a majority share of the company so that he can then make even more money. And he's done this by taking out mortgages on his expensive house and betting all of his very expensive items behind it and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, right after he's made the buyout, there's this unfortunate scenario where it seems as if his child has been kidnapped by an unnamed person. But what you end up learning is that it wasn't actually his child, but his child's friend. But the kidnapper has decided, you know what? It doesn't really matter. I'm going to put your morals on the line and say, are you a good enough person to pay my ransom, which is 30 million yen, to get this kid back? Doesn't matter if it's yours, but the public's opinion of you depends on this. So you kind of get this whole storyline of him deciding if he's going to pay the money or not. And then the second half of the film is the police investigation into who 
the person is that stole the kid. They do recover the, the child, but then the rest of it is who stole the kid. And it's so, it is weird because they do, you know, rescue the child pretty early on in the movie. And so oh, you yeah. kind of think like, oh, it's over now, but the investigation is, I feel like does it take up more of the movie than even just the beginning act? So, I'd say I'd say probably yeah. after they hand off the money to the kidnappers during the the big train scene, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. I so love good. that whole scene where they're they're communicating with the kidnapper over the phone, and they're told, you know, pack all the thirty million yen into two briefcases, and the briefcases can't be more than two point seven five inches thick. <laughs> and then they kind of learn why because they have to open this small train window that only opens 2.75 inches that they then drop it out of while they're on a moving train. So they do the handoff without ever seeing the kidnappers. I guess they catch them on video, but they're covering their faces with masks and hats. Very sly. Very sly. I love like a good hat that's like angled so you kind of can only see someone's mouth. Yes. It's so mysterious. It's very like Carmen Sandiego. But I'd say (laughs) right about after they do the handoff of the money and they have then retrieved the kid from that farmer's farm. Uh, is <laughs> That was a kind of a redundant way to say that. Um, after they have retrieved the child is about the halfway point of the movie, and then the rest of it is the investigation into who the kidnappers are. I feel like each part is so distinct. I mean, there's so much. You really feel Toshiro Mifune's. Is that how you say his name? Toshiro Mifune. Okay. I'll try to say it correctly from now on. But, I mean, that whole opening act is so tense, and you really can feel his predicament because... No matter what he does, there's going to be major consequences. Like if he doesn't pay, his reputation is going to be ruined. His morality is going to be questioned and his whole world's going to come crumbling down. But then if he does pay, then he's going to be financially ruined. So no matter what he does, he's effed. And so you can really feel (laughs) that stress. I mean, ultimately, he does make the heroic decision, but he still has to pay a huge price for that. And so I like you have that. It's very emotionally nuanced at first. And then you get into the more nitty gritty of the police investigation and it becomes kind of methodical and almost like most procedurals, I'd say. But it is very like well done and very there's a very clear arc and development in the way everything goes. Yeah. yeah. I love the ethical dilemma that gets presented mm-hmm. at the beginning. You can either save your $30 million and then hold on to this precedent that, no, we're not going to give in to bad people who do bad things and let them get what they want. But then the other side of that is, are you a bad person for not paying this money that you have to save the life of a child? I'm sure that there's probably been a lot of kind of like, I'm sure that this is a film that gets talked about in some like philosophy of film courses. I hope it is at least, because this is fairly interesting. I feel like the plot is almost this (laughs) cinematized version of there's always like the, um, you know, if you were a train conductor and you'd have to press a lever to... Oh, the trolley trolley problem. The trolley, yeah, and you can either... What is it? Like you push someone off? So so there's a couple versions. There's the the trolley problem where there's one line of track where there are five people who are tied to the track and then another line where there's one person and Mm. then you have the control of the switch to decide if the trolley is going to run over five or one and then, you know, there's the ramifications of what your choices are and how you make the choice. And then the other one that you're thinking of where you push a guy is there's a bridge over a train track and there's, it's usually they say it's a fat man (laughs) and you have, because I guess like his mass is going to stop a train, (laughs) which is pretty ridiculous. But you have the choice then that there's, you know, I think one or two people, it doesn't, or a number of people are tied to the track below. And you can either let those people get run over or sacrifice one fat man to save these people. Yeah. So. And the movie just, it feels like that to me. Like, it's just, there's not really a good choice. I mean, there's one that's better than the other, obviously. But, I mean, it's not just like, there's not a clean cut. Right, move. and then they also make these developments of Toshiro Mifuno's character to make you think that 
you know, maybe he does deserve to hold on to his money because they say they kind of give you some backstory about him and how he wasn't somebody who was born rich. He didn't inherit the shoe company. You get to see him working with his hands and you learn that, no, he started from the very bottom as somebody who worked in a factory making shoes. And he just capitalized and capitalized until he was this kind of, you know, shoe magnate, yeah. right? So do you, do you say, yeah, you've, you've worked hard enough. You deserve this money that you've earned or... Now you're a rich person, you have to sacrifice all of it. Yeah, and I feel like this movie too, it really subtly comments on the classes in society. I mean, you have that whole beginning is kind of a representation of the upper class. I mean, you also have this development of going from lower class to upper, so you have that aspect. And then the police investigation, you see a lot of the middle class living, because I mean, police officers don't make a ton of money. I mean, they're like fine, but they're not Mifune's level of rich in the movie. And then kind of toward the end, you see the seedier, lower class parts of society. We go into, what is that called? It's not like a crack house. It's like a heroin. Oh, it's like a like heroin a, den. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if there's like an official term for that. House, <laughs> den, cave, yeah. whatever you want to call it. There's heroin like going on there. That's true. It did not seem safe. So you see kind of <laughs> all of these shades of the society. And it's not like super, I mean, the investigation and the predicament at the beginning are the things we're the most focused on, but at the same time, you're also getting this look at class, which is, I think, really interesting as well. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of really, really interesting divisions. I mean, you have this in the title of the film, High and Low, Yeah. and the whole idea of high and low that they talk about in the movie is that the house that Toshiro Mifune and his family live in is at the top of this hill, and it's this, you know, magnificent house with these giant glass windows. It's a plot point that he likes to step out on the deck and have a smoke and look out the window at kind of, you know, the city below, but then, you know, they have to close the curtains so that the, the kidnappers can't see them and know that the police are mm -hmm. there. But there's all of these uh, dualities, so you have high and low, the richer class and the the poorer class, uh, cold and hot. They talk about the kidnapper will say when they're on the phone, you know, oh, it's really hot down here and you're up there in your air conditioned house. So you've cold and hot. Yeah. Um, then you have like kind of light and dark, even in, in terms of color, it's always brightly lit up in the house when there's the wealth. And then when they go to this underworld where there's all the drugs and bad stuff happening, it's very dark. It's a little harder to see what's going on. Same with that clean and dirty. You also have clean and addicted because you see these people who yeah. are you know, very rich very and nice. very wealthy and doing well, but then also people in the uh, heroin houses, dens, caves, <laughs> wherever they reside. That's such a big sign of a masterful filmmaker because Kurosawa can touch on all these things, have all these really smart contrasts, but it's never really in your face. It all flows together so naturally. And the movie's filmed in this verite style that's very believable. And so he's subtly doing all these things. And it's such a sign of this mastery. Did he write the movie? I, no I didn't notice that. I'm sure. Not. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he did. It's just, it's so masterful what he does here. And we see a lot of this stuff, not through dialogue, but through visuals. And I think the strongest parts of this movie that really drew me in, you know, I, I feel like it's rare when I find myself extremely absorbed in a movie. It kind of is difficult for me to fall in, but I was totally like zeroed in on this one going, uh. <laughs> but the blocking and choreography in this movie is so intense and so structured. Everybody is arranged in the frame just so and they will move across or stand up and sit down at the same times and they will even have people of different moral compasses arranged in like on opposite sides oh i didn't notice that so like whenever mifune's character is contemplating should i spend the money should i save it you see him usually there's one point where he was positioned so extremely to the right side of the screen that he was almost falling off, falling out of your TV. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have the investigator 
or most of the time the father of the child who's been kidnapped, totally looking broken down and defeated on the exact opposite end of the screen. So lots of movement and the way he'll have people move and stand up will usually direct your eye kind of to the person who's at the focal point of, I guess, moral quandary. So there's a lot going on. There's and I think this is the kind of movie that you'd probably have to watch a number of times to really pick up I on I feel like that too, because I mean, you're pointing out all these things that I didn't really notice. I was just kind of absorbed in the plot, so I wasn't really paying attention to a lot of the composition or even the contrast you were talking about earlier. I didn't even really think about until just now. I kind of almost want to go back now and kind of look at it through all these different lenses. I like it too, because I mean, the movie is very claustrophobic for, I mean, the beginning, we are confined to Mifune, his character's house. We're just stuck there and waiting to see how this kidnapping thing is going to play out. But even then, when you go out into the city, you're often, there's crowds usually around everybody, or there's a really great scene in a club where it's just like a bunch of people dancing. And so you're constantly, and the heroin den as well is very cramped, and there's not really any windows, and it's dirty. And so there's never a moment where you feel like you can breathe. It's always so claustrophobic. The movement in the movie really brought me back to a discussion that we had with Alex when he came in for our uh, the predestination episode. He said that he was frustrated by the use of the word action in movies and how people generally conflate action and violence. There's really no violence in this movie. Nobody's ever shot. I guess there are a couple people who die, but it's never shown on screen. This is a movie that's filled with action. Every movement that happens in the club is really scripted and organized, but there's not any dialogue because there's just this blaring music going on, but it's action-packed. It feels very busy almost a lot of the time. There's not ever a lull. And even when there are sequences where it is quiet, there's never, I don't know, it feels like there's almost no time to really contemplate what's going on because you're so wrapped up in this really tightly constructed plot. I do wonder how Kurosawa filmed a lot of these scenes in these crowded settings, especially like with the club, how to, I feel like it would have to be very organized having to do that, but it, you know, looks very natural. I wonder if he just kind of let them party. He was like, just forget we're I here. Imagine. We're I just going like, to pump the music. I always think that, but then there's like this, I mean, I guess this is probably romanticized, but there's this scene in this movie called Day for Night, which is about movie making. And the whole opening, it's like filming a street scene or whatever. And just like watching all that goes into it, like it's so organized. So I always am like wondering like how much of it is just kind of off the cuff or is it super constructed? Because I feel like someone like Kurosawa just looking at the way his shots are composed. I just have a hard time picturing him not being a control freak, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he was meticulous. You'd have to be. While we're on the topic of visuals, uh, I want to talk about one of my favorite things that happens in the movie, which (laughs) is kind of a gimmick, but it's also very cool. I was not expecting it. There's this whole bit where when they are packing the suitcases full of money to deliver to the criminal, the police end up inserting these tiny little, they're almost pills, into the fabric of the cases so that they can then locate them later because if the, there's two of them, there's like a yellow one and a pink one, they say, and the yellow one, if it is submerged in water, it will emit a really, really foul, strong odor, and then maybe people would report the odor and show up to it. And then the other one is a pink capsule where if it's burned, it'll emit this bright pink smoke, which will, of course, kind of give away their location. (laughs) So there's this great part where the child is hanging out in the house and he says, oh, mom, mom, dad, check out this really crazy pink smoke going on outside. It was from like 30 minutes before or something where they brought this up. And then you get a shot where they look out over the city and they've colored in the smoke. So it's a black and white film, but there's this bright pink smoke coming up from the city and it's the only color in the whole film. It's such a fun touch. And I think, didn't you text me before? I think I had even started watching the movie and you're like, oh, the smoke. And I was like, 
okay, I don't know what that I was means. like, look out for the smoke. It's so cool. And even though you told me when I saw it, I'm like, what the heck? And then I was like, oh, Aiden warned me about this. But I love the smoke. That was really cool. It's very cool. And I've read that there's some DVDs that they just kind of treated as a whole black and white thing. And so you can't see the pink at all. Mm. So there's some versions of this that exist where you don't get that little fun touch. Oh, the pink was mind blowing. I love that. And it, you know, this is not the first time that kind of effect has been done in a film. You know, there's a movie I have recommended a couple of times, I think is (laughs) Tokyo Drifter, which is this crazy wild movie that makes very little sense. But the the movie is in color, but the opening sequence is in black and white, but there's, I think it's a gun is on the ground at one point and they look over at it and it's, I think it's bright yellow or something. And that was also very shocking. I think they also do this with the coloration of those really old movies like the Georges Miel, like A Trip to the Moon, Mm -hmm. where those are filmed in more like a sepia tone, but then they're colored in by hand to be like pinks and reds and yellows. No, I love when black and white movies will have anything with a little bit of color. I always think of like the... 1945 version of the picture of Dorian Gray like the painting of Dorian Gray is the only thing in color in the whole movie that's cool which is a very and the portrait it gets like progressively terrifying so that's really cool to see that and then I was thinking even just like Sin City they do that there's like a character who I think he just looks like a monster and his skin's yellow and so you can only see like the yellow skin so I always love when you have just that weird touch you know it just even if I mean I feel like here someone easily could have been like oh wow pink smoke that's crazy and then we would have gotten you know, the message that we need, but it is a fun stylistic element to throw in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it it doesn't really hurt to throw in a little wow factor like that. Cause you know, the smoke being pink really, it has very little, I I guess, I guess it has some bearing on the plot, but for it to actually be colored pink outside of somebody saying, look, that smoke is pink. Yeah. It doesn't really matter, but it is very fun. I was trying to figure out if it was supposed to be like a symbol of some kind, but I don't, I don't think it is. Do you think it is? I feel like you're a lot so. more insightful than I am on this movie. I don't so. think so. I think I think it was just kind of for fun. But yeah. if I'm wrong, I would be happy to be proven wrong. If there is some kind yeah, of me too. bearing, I feel like that's <laughs> yeah, that was smart. I think it's smart anyway. <laughs> no, I am curious because I'm not a huge Kurosawa expert. The only other movie is his that I've seen is Stray Dog, which is also a police movie. So, but I that's feel like. I don't really know exactly where, because that one was done in 49, right? And this is 63, mm-hmm. so I have no... I Didn't he do a lot of samurai movies in the 50s, and so... That's something that was pretty jarring for me, because I guess the only other Kurosawa... Well, that's not true. I've seen Dreams, and I've also seen Stray Dog, which neither of those are samurai movies. Yeah. But the majority of the movies of his that I have seen have been his samurai movies like Rashomon and... Uh, Yojimbo and Throne of Blood, Seven Samurai, yeah. these kind of movies. And it's especially interesting to see Tomoshiro Mifune in a role where he's not playing a samurai. Really? Because I'm yeah. so used to him in that role. He has such an expressive face. And mm-hmm. usually, not usually, but the kind of samurai that he plays in Seven Samurai is this kind of lawless dude. He's constantly scratching himself. He's supposed to be like an animal. Yeah. He's a wild man <laughs> in that movie. And he is laughing and cackling and is maniacal in oh, that really? movie. Yeah, yeah. He's off the chain. Oh, wow. <laughs> but in this, he's, you know, very reserved. He's drawn back, which is even, you know, he's kind of reckless in Stray Dog. He's like a younger guy, but he's supposed to be playing this like older man who's like been through the trials and tribulations to, you know, earn his money and his keep. It's fun to see him in a new role. No, I've got to explore because, yeah, in my mind, I just think of Kurosawa almost as just like a crime director, even though I know that's just one facet of his filmography. I read that this was his last film noir movie. I don't know if that's true or not, but definitely he's great at structuring his movies. I like too that I think these stories because they are kind of ambitious. I like how he never, I think a lot of directors when they 
have this much material to work with might be tempted to go the non-linear route in a Tarantino sort of way, which fun sometimes, but I like that they do unfold because I feel like in a way that's almost harder than non-linearly. I appreciate that this movie is straightforward and it yeah. has a plot that is followable without having to introduce like a big reveal of who the kidnapper was. Because yeah. it's not like a terribly big shock. Mm -hmm. You just kind of are introduced to him through some shots of him sitting in his room, kind of counting the money and listening to the radio. It's a very simple, it's not like, and it was the guy who was in the room <laughs> in the house the whole time. That's what I was, I, it was my just mind a criminal. kept doing that. Like my brain was really overcompensating and I, I had either it was going to be a plot twist or it would be, you know, someone who was maybe close to the leading character or I don't know why, but I had thought that maybe Mifune, his character, orchestrated the kidnapping. Like, my brain was just, like, trying to make all these overcomplicated finales, and this movie didn't at all, which was kind of a surprise. I expected that they were going to explain that the other shareholders who found out his plan to overthrow them, that they were going to be the ones who had orchestrated yeah, the kidnapping. And that didn't end too. up being the case. Yeah. Because uh, that seemed like the most plausible explanation. And in a way, like, I feel like the one offered here is pretty plausible, but I feel like movies generally like to take more melodramatic routes and so the fact that this one doesn't really it is kind of a shock but I think it works well here well on that note <laughs> I think uh, I would like to hear some fun facts from you about this movie I hope they don't disappoint most of the train sequences were shot live on the Kodama Super Express, and pretty much all the extras were just passengers. Wow, that must That's have cool. been hard to record the audio then. I would imagine. It's a loud, actual train. I, I wouldn't want to be there at all, but good for Kurosawa. For scenes in Gonda's house, uh, an outside miniature set of Yokohama was built with like bridges and a moving train and with lights for all the wait, nighttime wait, whoa, shots. Wait, whoa, whoa, The whole yes. city? I guess they so. built a miniature. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look up some pictures of that. That's what that I need to be sounds said. incredible. I know. I love. I it. knew that the house on the hill was a miniature, but there's yeah. moving trains. And it's bridges. too much. That's great. Good for them. That's so I love great. it. And then I guess for most day shots, they filmed in a studio living room set with the actual city of Yokohama outside. So kind of get a taste of everything. You get some artifice. You get some real stuff. Love that. For I guess we should probably talk about like geography a little bit. The movie yeah. is set in Japan in a city, but it's not Tokyo, it's Yokohama, which is the second biggest city oh, okay. in Japan. Um, the original ending of the book that this movie is based on shows Gondo with his recovered money, buying out his stock, and then taking over National Shoes, which is a lot different than this movie plays out because he's kicked out of the shoe company that he works for at the beginning of the movie and he has to restart. That would have been interesting to see this kind of optimistic conclusion. I don't know how much that would deter what Kurosawa was going for. I like that they went with a morally gray ending. I like especially how the final confrontation that he has with the criminal who's in jail and they kind of talk, you know, it's not through a telephone like they usually do on <laughs> crime that. dramas, but it's yeah. through just like a little screen. The criminal's like, oh, I bet you're happy that I'm going to hang for this yada 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 and Toshiro Mifune is like why do you think that I have to hate you and then the movie just kind of ends <laughs> it's great I'm happy that they you know it's a movie that has a very black and white title high and low but it yeah. doesn't resolve with the good guys are good and the bad guys are bad it just kind of ends with this ambiguous morally gray mm -hmm. ending which That's is perfect yeah there are so many like blacks and whites in this movie is very stark contrasts except for morality 
All right, more fun facts. Let's see. The film made its American debut the week the president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. So Whoa. rough timing. Talk about, movie. I mean, talk about an event that created just an enormous cultural ripple yeah. and loss of optimism. Seriously. It kind of seems like the perfect time almost for this yeah. movie to come out. That's pretty dark. It is really dark. Because I feel, yeah, that event itself is so dark and this movie is so dark. So it's like not escapist entertainment for no. sure. So maybe wow. not a great idea to see it if you know you're reeling from that. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, <laughs> the wire that the kidnapper grabs during the last scene was actually electrified. <laughs> so when he grabbed it, like he really was shocked. That blows. Wait, the wire that he grabs? I don't know. It says he grabbed a wire. In the last scene? Yeah. Oh, like when he's grabbing onto the grate? I think so, yeah. Wow, he was electrified. (laughs) That would not be fun. I would just quit. (laughs) I quit this job. Well. (laughs) Do you have anything else? Oh, I was just going to, I had like read a review of this that commented that Kurosawa, in addition to having all these contrasts, kind of wants us to come to the conclusion that no matter your social status, there should be no excuse for your humanity to be altered, which I thought was very interesting. Thought I'd throw that in there, but that's, I have nothing that more to feels, say about that. That feels like the moral of this movie. Yeah, the reviewer, he got it right. I don't remember Do the right who it thing. was. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Do you have anything else? I think that's actually the end of what I wanted to really talk about. Oh. I think we'll probably have some more stuff come out in Final Thoughts and okay. recommendations. Are you ready? Cool. Ready for that? I think I'm ready. Cool, why don't you start us off with the recommendations this week? Okay, so I feel like I picked very basic movies just police procedurals that i'm a big fan of um i know i'm pretty sure lots of people have seen these i feel like i recommended one of them before but you know i didn't look it up if it's double recommended it just means you need to watch it sooner that's true and it also they both these movies are i think two and a half hours as well so we're really just keeping in touch with that (laughs) so the first one is david fincher's zodiac it's based on real life based on the police investigation of the zodiac killer and how fruitless it was and how maddening it was and that's a very interesting movie it gives you an inside look into this story that's always really fascinated me i think the zodiac killer is one of the more compelling crime stories the fact that it's still unsolved is insane so but that movie's very well done and isn't super sensationalist which i appreciate it's not like high and low because for Mm -hmm. the zodiac movie it's a small staff of investigators who are working on this case as opposed to high and low, where it seems like there is an unlimited amount of people yeah. who are being thrown at this <laughs> one case. And I don't know what the comment here or the commentary is supposed to be here. Like, oh, yes, of course, when it's somebody who's really wealthy, who's been wronged, do the police do like a really big, long investigation? Because there's scenes where there's, what, like over 30 investigators yeah. in one room in high it's and so low crowded. who are all working on different aspects of the case. We've got five guys who are working on where the phone calls were made. We've got five guys working on a map of the city. We've got yada, 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 and so on and so forth. No, it's crazy. It's wild. They really have the resources. They do. Which is why I feel like they do get to the bottom of it pretty fast. Props to them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, one of the most fun things about high and low is watching them uncover and you know, kind of unspool the mystery yeah. through their genius. You know, they're trying to figure out, oh, what phone booth was this call made from? Mm-hmm. The kidnapper said on the phone that he was really hot. So we've ruled out these six phone booths because they are not in direct sunlight during the time when this call is being made mm-hmm. because the sun is in this position. Yeah, it's genius. It's so good. And, and it's I've, very fun. And I feel like those sequences too, I, I mean, I usually don't love exposition, but in these kinds of scenes, like I really appreciate it. And I love kind of being everything being over explained to me because I... A lot of times cannot get there on my own. And so 
and it is fun too because you get a lot of like what really when they're explaining stuff which is always really cool it's fun because they they don't just say they're the exposition the exposition isn't really like abstract it's not like oh they have taken this much or they've <laughs> taken some money from me it's like yeah the kidnapper wants a ransom of 30 million dollars and then they'll also explain well i have this much money in my stocks and that yeah. means that i have 13 percent of the stocks but i did this and this and this deal behind and i accrued 19 more stock percentages and now mm. i have this many i like how specific it is and it's like how people would actually talk to each other it's not like i bought a lot of stocks and now i have a majority <laughs> share they'd probably say i own 45 percent of the company yeah no it's i appreciate that realism i really do too uh, my second recommendation is, I haven't seen it in a while, but I did like it a lot when I saw it, was uh, Martin Scorsese's. Is that how you say it? Is it Scorsese or Scorsese? I've, I've heard, heard it, it both, both ways. ways. <laughs> oh, wow. Jinx. That was good. The Departed, great. It's kind of a gang drama, but at the same time, there's a police officer who is working undercover as a mole trying to, you know, get some of these dudes behind bars. And <laughs> like this one, it is very multidimensional and really covers all its bases. And it has a really fantastic cast doing career best work. Who's in it? Matt Damon, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jack Nicholson, just a murderer's row of talent. So Marky Mark's in it. Oh, Marky Mark Don't is in it too. Don't forget about Marky Mark. Wow, <laughs> look at him. Yeah. <laughs> I just but, get the Irish uh, jig song from that movie stuck in my head. Oh yeah, that's I forgot that song is in that. I feel yeah. like is it in it multiple times? Oh I feel yeah, like it's such a definer. It's one of, of the, what's going it's one on. of the late motifs that plays <laughs> again and yeah. again. Very true. And that that movie's based on a Korean film, I think, or maybe it's a Japanese oh, is it? movie. Yeah, I think I, I'll you're right. I'll look it up while you are giving the rest of your stuff. Well, that's kind of it though. Oh, so that's kind of I'll it. Just, okay. Maybe I'll just I could keep word vomiting and just no, no, it's okay. Um, <laughs> I guess you can cut it out or something. <laughs> and uh, uh, Okay, it's a remake of a movie that was filmed in Hong Kong uh, called Infernal Affairs. Oh, frick. That's on my list. I want to see that so bad. Yeah. Wow, and there you go. There's so, another reason for me to watch it. Scorsese's so well-watched. I mean, oh, he's that seen guy, everything. Yeah, he's I seen love, everything. He always is putting out, I think Tarantino does this too, and Steven Soderbergh, they're always putting out lists of what they've recently watched or like what mm. are the top ten of whatever and always love yeah. when directors do that. Scorsese always does all the commentaries and uh, interview mm -hmm. stuff with like the Criterion channel and he, yeah, he, he's, he's seen great. everything. He's, he's got, a, you know, he's got like a personal movie theater and he collects, <laughs> you know, films. He's too much. Such a big fan. He's a big fan. Of movies. Great movie maker. He just is so well-rounded. <laughs> a true great. Isn't and he, his... he makes an appearance in a Kurosawa movie himself. Really? Yes. Which one? In Dreams from oh, his last 1990. Movie. Wow, yeah. look Second at that. Second to last. That's good. I heard... It's Scorsese's new movie. It's like really expensive. Isn't it like $150 million? Oh, something like that. Is a it little, The Irishman? Is that what it's called? I think so. I'm a little worried because do you think it'll make its budget back? I don't know. That's a lot. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, we'll see it probably. Maybe. I didn't see his last movie. What was, was his last hours, movie? Uh, Silence with... Andrew oh, Garfield. I saw that in the theater. I, I was exhausted by the end of it. It was too much. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. All right. Which was also a remake of a movie from the 70s called Silence. Wow. He's really just remaking everything these yeah. days. Classic Martin. What are your recommendations? My recommendations. I'm happy that you went with just kind of the classic crime procedurals <laughs> because I went with kind of some of the things from the topics we've been talking about. Ooh. Uh, so I went with, I've recommended this before, but I'm going to recommend it again. Wow. Uh, Fritz Lang's film from the 30s, M. Woo. <laughs> Thank, I love the, the screaming endorsement. That's great. <laughs> uh, and I went with this because of all of the moving people in the frame. 
M is another kind of morally cloudy movie that asks the question of what do we do with people who have done horrendous things? It, like it's kind of film a little bit about the the death penalty and it's also a lot about like mob mentality and how yeah. people act when they're all, you know, rallying against one thing. But they kind of kidnap a pedophile who's been murdering children and they put him on this literally underground trial. They are under the ground and they're all saying they're gonna, you know, murder him and all this stuff. But in those scenes, there are tons and tons of people in the frame and they all move and the people stand up and it's all very intricately choreographed. So that's my recommendation for movement. The next one I would say, because this movie is about like divides and this really nice high-class world <laughs> undercut by this seedy underworld that's pretty gross and weird is uh, David Lynch's Blue Velvet, which <laughs> deals a lot with the same kind of themes of this pretty suburbia, which is undercut by really scary stuff that's going on. Ugh, Blue I Velvet stand. is a... It's a great movie. It's deeply upsetting. It's so upsetting, ways. as all of David Lynch's things are. You know, there's I love a... being upset by him. <laughs> it's an <laughs> honor. You know, there's a, there's a place in Portland. It's a... A movie store you can go to and they also have a collection of film props my girlfriend sent me a picture they have uh, the ear from blue velvet oh, that the wow. camera goes inside of it from the very first <laughs> shot they have that plastic ear you oh, know wow. on display in a glass case in that's there. good yeah, i really do you gotta, i got it too i, I should take go. a selfie with it and that'll be like a new profile picture just me and the ear you from and the ear blue you velvet. and that really gross ear <laughs> uh and then the last recommendation i have a japanese movie called i am waiting which was directed by koryoshi kurahara and this is another kind of movie about the underworld. It's from 1957. It's about a boxer who has retired because in his last fight, he punched a guy so hard that that guy died. Oh. So he was forced to retire. And he ends up getting involved with this gang because he helps a prostitute get off of the streets and they are after her. Dang. And that movie also has a really great bit that happens in a club that's pretty dramatic. So oh, I'm going to have to watch that. Yeah, I really like it. It's a slow burn. I don't oh, think okay. it's an especially long movie, but it's it's kind of slow. Okay. Well, as long as it's not two and a half hours long. No, I, I, I would probably, okay. I'd probably put it in more like the hour and a half range. Ooh, I think that's okay. how I remember it at least. Great amount of time. Yeah, so grimy underworld that's where it's at yeah i want to live there i'm just kidding <laughs> so those are my recommendations great ones legendary well i think that brings us to the end of the episode i think so yeah yeah wow so tidy wow. very tidy <laughs> if you want to hear more of us talking about movies you can find us on apple podcasts google play or pretty much wherever you find podcasts you can also find us on our website uwpodcast.com where there's other great shows like home plates and pillow talk and the box seat podcast and several more. Uh, you can, if you want to follow us on the internet, you can find <laughs> us on Twitter at the Filmcast, or you can follow us on our personal accounts at Aiden Walkero or at Blake W. Peterson. If you want to write to us with suggestion of a movie to watch or just share your thoughts with us, you can reach us at cinemadventurepodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, share it with a friend, get it out on the internet, or leave us a review on iTunes if you really want to help. If you want to follow along with us, next Monday we're going to be talking about The Third Man. Woo! Woo, have you seen that one? I saw it a really long time ago, and I thought it was fantastic when I saw it, so okay. I'm pumped. I know that the, th the Third Man is like the favorite movie of, I've heard a lot of people. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Mm. Okay, well, I'm excited because I have not seen it. Anyway, <laughs> that's all I've got, so thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next Monday. Bye. See you later.
Did you know Peruvians have their own type of Chinese food? Or that Vietnamese food is heavily influenced by French cuisine? Have you ever wondered what other cultures' drunk food is like? Explore these topics and more right here on the Soundbite Network. My name is Didi Madigan, and I'm the host of Home Plates, a podcast all about food. Catch up on the first season of Home Plates on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. New episodes air every Wednesday. Seattle Seahawks have the best offensive line in NFL history. Kyle Seeger is the better Seeger brother. Markel Fultz is the best player on the Sixers. Hashtag trust the process. Okay, we don't actually believe any of these things, but if you want to hear our thoughts on topics like these, tune into the Boxing Podcast with Chris Ankiko, Alec Dietz, and Andy Amashta every Friday on the Soundbite Network. For more like this and other great shows covering sports, science, relationships, and the arts, visit the Soundbites website, uwpodcast.com. That's uwpodcast.com.